Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Karen Miller. When I was in grad school, I had a professor who was smart and really knowledgeable, and he frequently did something that surprised me. He would answer questions either by saying he wasn't sure or by saying, I can tell you a little bit about this, but if you really want an in-depth answer, this woman or this man is the real expert, so go read a paper that that person wrote. That stayed with me. It made me realize that many of the smartest people are smart enough to know how little they know and how big and complicated almost any area of study is, whether it's Shakespeare or cardiology. 10 years ago, Susan Jacoby wrote a book called The Age of American Unreason, in which she worried that we had stopped respecting this sort of intellectual nuance. The nuance that reveals itself when you get immersed in Brazilian history or astrophysics or psychology. In his recently published book, The Death of Expertise, Tom Nichols, a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, says, we've reached a new low. We've become a country that's either forgotten or just doesn't care about true experts. Tom and Susan are with me to talk about how we got here and what happens now. Thanks to both of you for joining me. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. So, uh... Tom, just give me an overview of what you see happening. You know, when you talk about the death of expertise, which sounds very alarmist when something dies, give me a sense of what you see happening. Well, expertise might not be dead, but it's on the respirator right now. The problem is not that people are doubting experts. That's kind of a normal part of, I actually think that's a really positive part of our culture. Mm -hmm. It's that people are now trying to replace experts. It's not that people say to their a doctor, for example, well, you know, I want a second opinion or I'm not trusting what you tell me. It's They're saying, I'm smarter than you are. I'm as good a doctor as you are. In my case, I'm a Russia specialist. I'm a Russian-speaking, uh, Soviet-era and Russian expert. And increasingly, people would say, you don't really understand Russia. I'll explain Russia to you. Instead of just asking me questions or doubting my conclusions and saying, please explain that to mm-hmm. me, they say, no, no, I, I'm going to explain Russia to you. That's what I mean about the death of expertise. It's, it's a remarkable kind of hyper egalitarianism that really treats expertise as nothing more than kind of technical knowledge that anybody could gain with enough, you know, mouse clicks or reading enough books over time. Hmm. Susan, give me a sense. I mean, you've been thinking about this issue of intellectualism and experts on things and how we deal with them for a long time. I mean, in the 50s, for example, you know, people who were intellectuals who were thought of as maybe vaguely communist were often discounted. So I wonder, are we in 2017 in a moment that's substantially different from what we've seen in other periods of history in the U.S. and other decades? Yes, I think we are, and I think so even more strongly than when my book was first published, which was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think that the Internet, which contributes very much to the idea that everybody is his own expert, is what was not there in the 1950s and in the 1960s. One of the things, and and I'm not saying that the Internet is a bad thing, Mm -hmm. but one of the things that it has 
done for stupid people is it ma- it makes them think that everybody's opinion is as good as everyone else's. It's certainly, for example, the internet has contributed to one of the stupidest, both anti-intellectual, anti-scientific, and anti-expertise movements, the anti-vaccine movement. And the main reason for that is that a lot of movie stars' opinions about why their child has autism are considered on a par with with the doctors who spent their lifetime treating autistic children or doing research on autism. So I definitely think the internet and particularly the impact of social media, this this is a whole addition to anti-intellectualism that we did not have in the 50s and 60s. But, but it's not the source of it. I mean, that's I think um, if I could just interject a point there, it's uh, I agree completely, and I think especially the ubiquity of celebrities on the internet is a real problem. But um, this problem is really the expression. The internet is just an enabler for a deeper problem, which is an Im- immense, towering narcissism among ordinary citizens that they are simply able to master everything in a way that I think people in the 1950s and 60s and even 70s had had a a greater sense of proportion about that they simply understood that they couldn't be experts on everything. But I think Susan's point about how the internet generates an environment where everybody's opinion is considered equal to everybody else's is is a really crucial point. Tom, what has happened then? I mean, I can't imagine that Americans have changed so much since the 1970s. I mean, the people, after all, living in the 1970s were the parents of the people, you know, who are uh, in midlife now. How are their children so different from the parents? Well, they're not. I mean, I would argue that, that Americans are different than they were 40 or 50 years ago. Maybe it's my knee-jerk um, belief that all bad things began somehow in the late 1960s. Uh, but I think there is something to the growth, and I'm not the first to notice it. I mean, Christopher Lash and Robert Hughes and others pointed out that American culture over the past 40 or 50 years has become increasingly um, dangerously narcissistic. And I think what you're seeing in the attacks on um, achievement, the attacks on intellectual achievement, the attacks on expertise is really the end result of a kind of perpetually adolescent culture that cannot tolerate ever being told it's wrong about anything. And I think that that is a sea change in, in the difference. I mean, I, I'm a middle-aged guy. My parents were greatest generation rather than boomer generation. But this, you know, this notion that somehow you would say to a doctor, well, I know better than you about vaccines, or that you would say to a diplomat, well, I understand nuclear weapons better than you do, mm-hmm. um, would, would, would have been laughable in 1965, and now it's commonplace. So I, th- I do think there's been a huge cultural sea change. Susan, I wonder what you think about that idea of, like, the rise of narcissism. It's a good time to ask about the rise of narcissism, I might have disagreed more strongly since I don't think everything bad started in the late 1960s uh, <laughs> at all. Uh, and, and I also, have, my parents are greatest generation parents. But we certainly cannot discount the fact that we have elected an enormous narcissist as, and I'm not speaking now as a clinical psychologist. I'm speaking as, as, as I'm sure Tom is speaking, uh, not in a diagnostic way. But the idea, the idea that stupidity, uh, that I, I, I remember, for example, during the campaign when Donald Trump said, 
I love the poorly educated. I cannot imagine this having been said in the 1950s or the 1960s when Richard Hofstadter wrote Anti-Intellectualism in American Life because the American dream in the past was always that your children would be better educated than you are. The American dream isn't about loving the poorly educated. It's about giving people a chance for a better education. And that, I think, is one of the things that has changed. I think I, I would disagree a little bit about the Internet. The Internet obviously is not a cause of anti-intellectualism anti since people have been writing about it since the 1830s. But... It is more than just an enabler in this sense. The amount of time that activities on the internet and social media take from other things. To be educated, forget the word intellectual, just to be an educated, knowledgeable, curious, thinking person, you have to spend time doing things that satisfy that. I was going to say, and you're not interacting with other people. And that's part of this problem of narcissism, that, they, that people spend so much time alone talking to a screen and getting their information from a screen that this breeds that sort of, you know, everything's accessible to me. Nobody ever argues with me. Nobody ever should argue mm -hmm. with me. So on this, I agree with Susan uh, completely. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Susan Jacoby, author of The Age of American Unreason, and Tom Nichols, author of The Death of Expertise. One of the striking things that has happened um, is that the word elites, which has become so popular now, seems to refer very often to people with a lot of education rather than people with a lot of money. And I think, I mean, I don't know if that's um, a switch, but I feel like if you had talked to somebody in 1950 and you talked about the elites, they would have thought you meant the rich people. But right. who you mean now is somebody with a doctorate who maybe doesn't make all that much money and, you know, like eats kale and goes to Starbucks. How did that happen? Like, explain to me how, how the word elites got repurposed. Well, it, part of it was structural in that people who are now succeeding more in our economy tend to be people who have mastered the information economy. I was just in San Francisco um, yesterday, and it was a reminder that, boy, I wish I'd, you know, 30 years ago, I wish I'd been smarter and moved to California and had some <laughs> big ideas about the Internet, but, um, but here I am. And uh, the other, though, is an intentional political strategy, and Trump in particular used this brilliantly. He, he surfed this quite adeptly as a political strategy, which is to take anybody who's smarter than you are, who seems to do work that isn't as miserable or unpleasant as yours, and to lump them all into a category called elites. And this grates on me personally, because I actually don't come from that kind of background. I mean, I went, I worked my way through school, and I went to graduate school, and I was fortunate enough to find some good jobs where I was able to do well. But I mean, my, you know, to anybody who would look into my background, there is nothing even close to an elite background. I grew up in a factory town. My parents were Depression era kids. They didn't finish high school. Oh, I would add to that that a lot of people with PhDs are adjunct professors who have no good health care and are, are making broke. right who are <laughs> broke and making money per class. Now, it is true they wrote a dissertation and they know a lot of things, but it's it's such a funny thing to think that they are elite, but a a very rich person is not. Like it's a funny thing. Well, there's something else that's really important too. It wasn't just a political strategy by Trump, and this use of the word elites was a political strategy by the far right 
long long before Trump came along. But I have to say, you know, as as a member of of the media, various <laughs> kinds, uh, that the media itself bears a significant responsibility in this misuse of the word elites. Hmm. The media often adopted the word elites and used it, even even the, 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 the liberal media adopted the word elites just to mean anybody who works with their head hmm. and yes. who doesn't necessarily build something. Uh, as an example of where the media drops the ball on this over and over and has for many, many years. Uh, somebody should have asked Donald Trump the question, and as far as I know, they never did. Uh, did he choose a non-expert to design the foundations and do the engineering for his hotels? Well, maybe he did. I, yeah, I, I was going to say, know. you know wanna... <laughs> He certainly didn't choose a very good decorator or architect. But but the, the use of the term elites, meaning Meaning, and anybody who comes it doesn't have anything to do with the background you come from. I come from a background more like yours, Tom, than anything else. It doesn't have to do with that. It has to do what you do, and so that journalists who actually, except for a, a very small number of them, whom you see on TV every night, don't actually make a lot of money right. either, any more than academics right. do. But they're thought to be smarty pants. <laughs> You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking about America's turn away from experts and intellectuals with Susan Jacoby and Tom Nichols. Um, you have both mentioned the president, President Trump. Let's hear from him. Uh, here he is as a candidate talking about experts. Uh, and in this particular case, he's talking about experts on China. You look at what China is doing in the South China Sea. And they say, oh, Trump doesn't have experts. Let me tell you, I do have experts, but I know what's happening. China is not. And look at the experts we've had. OK, look at the experts. All these people have had experts. You know, I've always wanted to say this. I've never said this before. With all the talking we all do, all of these experts. Oh, we need an expert. The experts are terrible. Tom Nichols, um, as an expert on Russia, as uh, as we were talking about, um, when you hear the president say that, like, basically, who needs experts on China? What do you think? Well, it chills your blood. Um, and as Susan pointed out, we're not speaking as clinical psychologists, and I'm not speaking in any capacity for the Naval War College or for the U.S. government. I mean, it's my own view. Um, I think the president, uh, I, think, I think it's, it's uh, ridiculous to, to go out on that kind of limb to say you don't need experts and the experts are terrible. But it was part of the president's narrative that everything is terrible. On the other hand, uh, you know, there's been a kind of t real-time test. Does the president need experts? Well, I'd say the last three months show that, uh, you know, how's that plan working out? Not so well. Whether it's, you know, talking to NATO or trying to ram through an executive order, um, the fact that, you know, this is amateur hour, you know, isn't working out that well, and this is what happens. And, of course, the, the president's voters responded to that because he, what he's really saying is experts are terrible people who are screwing up your life. He doesn't really mean that, you know, he can't possibly think, well, I suppose he could, that he knows more about China, you know, than the experts. So I'll let either of you tackle this. But if we were having this conversation three years ago, um, you know, before Donald Trump was somebody that people really thought, you know, like could be president, uh, the president would have been Barack Obama, somebody who, I mean, 
was president of Harvard Law Review. And you could think of, I mean, he wasn't a professor, but you could think of as a, an intellectual and a very cerebral sort of person who certainly did welcome experts on China and Russia and whatever else into the White House. Um, so I just wonder how much... Uh, this this sort of anti-intellectualism that we're talking about is a of-the-moment thing and how much we're on a trajectory because it seems like not too long ago we elected a very intellectual sort of person. I am glad you asked that question because it, it is the thing that has bedeviled me. I think we have to look at, I think, in fact, the, the election of Barack Obama, it kind of blinded us to other cultural trends that were going on at the same time that we had a president who was, I would say, really one of the more thoughtful, introspective presidents since since Abraham Lincoln, if not the most. I think there are two things that, that are very important here. Barack Obama's respect for knowledge and, and his own knowledge was both an asset and a liability. And I personally think that, 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 and a lot of people disagree with me, that one of the particular problems he had was being an intellectual president who was also black. I don't care that nobody actually comes out and says it. I think that those people who voted for Obama but who then voted for Trump, I think some of them, I think there was a feeling that he was uppity in the old-fashioned sense of the word, because he clearly was an intellectual, somebody very knowledgeable, and also because he was also introspective, which isn't necessarily what an intellectual is, he was seen as being sort of cold and above it all by, by some people, and that was a trait that was also associated with intellectualism. So I think the fact that he was in the White House, it kind of closed our eyes to the, the trends that were still going on and, and maybe accounted for the election of Bush followed by Obama, followed by Trump, although as far as I'm concerned, Bush is periclean Athens compared to Trump. <laughs> well, for for what it's uh, for what it's worth, I actually started writing about this problem uh, the first time I sat down to really kind of write a you know a long piece about this was four years ago. Hmm. So this was this was not I did not write the book or anything about expertise because of Trump, hmm. but because I could I could feel in my bones something like Trump was coming. And what um, made I'll you think? So what made you think that? As we said, when like the pre you know the president of the United States, you know, had was this kind of very, you know, some people thought overly thoughtful person, right? Thought about multiple sides of every issue. I'm going to take issue here with with Susan. I mean, the problem is that the the people who really in intellectual circles who who voted for Barack Obama, um, I think, voted for him. On, especially viewing him that way as he's very thoughtful, he's very intellectual. Um, I didn't vote for Obama, and I didn't really view him that way. Um, I thought his biggest problem, and this is where I will agree with Susan, is that people called him professorial, and they didn't mean it as a compliment. They meant it as hmm. aloof and condescending and self-regarding and all of those other things, and I think he had a real problem with that. I think he had a real problem with how he presented himself in that way. I think the Obama who got elected by everybody else was the guy who was amazing at connecting with people during uh, stirring speeches and who promised to you know lift people out of poverty and to give them a second chance and to fund their health care. I mean, I really think um, that the fact that he was an intellectual 
was a, a, a secondary matter, except when he acted like the stereotype of an intellectual. My concern, and um, I expressed this on election night 2012, I, th I thought, you know, uh, that this was going to lead to a, a not a white lash, which is, I, I think, an unfortunate term, although I think there's some truth in it, but to a general backlash among people who felt like um, that they wanted to strike back at educated elites in general mm -hmm. who were pushing Obama specifically because he was intellectual and smart and all of those things. And I was really concerned on election night in 2012. I said, you know, the, the, four years from now, the Republicans are going to do something crazy. And I just didn't know how, how bad it was going to get. But I, I had a feeling in my bones, even the night uh, President Obama was reelected, that this was not going to end well in 2016. Tom, what do you uh, do when... What do you say when somebody says to you, you know, look, I, I listened to what experts said about who was going to win in 2016 in the presidential election, but they were wrong. You know, I listened to this or that, and experts aren't always right. Sometimes research has changed about what foods are good for you and what foods are not, or, you know, whatever it is. In fact, you know, to go back, we've talked a lot um, on this show in general, but even in this conversation, we've talked about uh, research into whether vaccines cause autism. And the, you know, I mean, th there was a paper published. Now, it was retracted. The guy was is no longer a doctor and all that. But uh, it was originally, once upon a time, published. So what do you do when people say, but sometimes experts get it wrong. Why should I care? Why should I listen to them? The thing that I tell people when they when they present me, I you know, when I started writing the book, people would uh, present me with what I always called the holy trinity of expert failure. I'd say, well, I'm writing about, you know, experts and why you should listen to them. And they'd say, thalidomide. Vietnam, Challenger, almost mm -hmm. like it was an incantation. And, you know, my answer was, look, you know, experts are going to get things wrong. The question is, the, there are two ways to think of it. First of all, are they more likely to be right than you are? That's the first thing to think about. because I should you know, get in people... here, too, that thalidomide was a drug that I think people took for morning sickness, like in the 50s, yeah, right? Yeah, they, they gave it to pregnant women right. as a sedative, right. not realizing that right. it actually produced horrendous birth, birth defects. And when people say, well, and of course, this was even before I was born. This was you know, back in the 1950s. And I would say, okay, well, you know, in the 60 years since... Americans take 300,000 over-the-counter drugs every day that you don't even have to think about it because they're safe. So what you're really doing, and this is, you know, when I throw back to people who, who bring this up with me, I said, what you're really doing is you're trying to find an example of expert failure so that you can get off the hook of ever having to listen to experts again. It's like the people who go to their doctor and say, you were wrong about eggs. Now, that one got me, because I'm a big egg fan. I'm an omelet guy. I love eggs. Um, <laughs> you know, and I even, I even kind of ribbed my doctor about it. I said, oh, you're going you're gonna to tell me to you know, uh, quit eating eggs? And he laughed, and he said, yeah, we're kind of rethinking that one. The fact of the matter is, your doctor is still better at keeping you alive with a good diet longer. You know, This is empirically undeniable. People today live longer than they've ever lived, and they live healthier lives than they've ever lived. The fact that doctors may have been wrong about the mechanism of how we metabolize cholesterol in eggs does not mean you should start eating bacon cheeseburgers and six-packs for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what people really want to do. They want to, they want to catch you out. It's a game of gotcha on expert failure to say, because you experts were wrong on this one thing, I never have to listen to you again. And I think that that is, again, it's adolescent. It's the way children argue uh, to try to find that one mistake. You know, d there are bad dentists when people say, oh, you, t you say to trust experts. But I had a dentist who once, you know, and uh, again, I always say, all right, well, the next time, pull your own tooth. See how that goes. <laughs> 
Um, my final question for both of you is this, um, and it's kind of a two-parter, uh, but how do we fix this? And where do you see it actually going? Um, Tom, I will start with you, and then Susan, you can close us out. Well, there are two um, possibilities here. One is that this problem is going to fix itself because a disaster is going to be the thing that brings us back to our senses. Um, the anti-vaccine movement, for example, that's that's the kind of thing. All of this death of expertise phenomenon that I talk about is the really it's a disease of affluence. It's the kind of thing people do when times are actually pretty good. Um, what will end uh, the anti-vaccine movement will be a pandemic. That and you know, so it could take something horrible where people come to their senses and, you know, a Great Depression or a military conflict where people say, oh, well, maybe we ought to talk to people who actually know about the economy or about diplomacy or about how to end a war uh, instead of doing this by, you know, chanting in big sweaty arenas and yelling USA at the top of our lungs. The, the other part, though, is I think experts need to get back in the game. Experts have shirked. On this, I'm going to call out my own guys and say experts have really shirked their responsibility. Talking to the public has become too difficult. It's too conflictual. And a lot of experts have just pulled back and said, well, I can't really explain things. I'm, I'm kind of a fan of shaming at this point. I mean, um, <laughs> when people say, you know, when somebody like Han Sean Hannity goes out and says, you know, insane things um, and, you know, puts conspiracy theories out there, I don't think you negotiate with that. I think you plant a flag in the ground as an expert, as a knowledgeable person, and you say, you know what, this is wrong. You're just wrong, and I'm not going to coddle you. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to patronize. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to not make you feel bad about believing something stupid. Um, I think experts need to get out there and to say, look, you know, a respectful conversation means that I heard what you said, but now you have to hear what I say. I'm not here to work around you and figure out how to make you feel better about the fact that you keep bringing your own facts. And Susan, what do you, what do you see happening? Is there a fix for this ahead? I couldn't agree with Tom more that I think that everybody who has the word expertise is wrong, who has knowledge needs to stop being ashamed of it. One of the things, by the way, that, that, that that's happened on the far left is that you have a lot of people standing out there trying to pretend that they're not intellectuals. You know, I'm not an intellectual because I grew up in Brooklyn or something like that. <laughs> uh, people should be proud and take pride in what they know and what they've learned and what they've read. And they also, there could be, I think there could be nothing more patronizing. And this is one thing I think is a fix for it. I think that liberal intellectuals, since the election, we've just had a, and actually it comes from conservative intellectuals too, we've had intellectuals constantly, both conservative and liberal intellectuals, berating themselves for not knowing how to talk to blue-collar workers and so on, and that's why Hillary Clinton lost, and that's why Donald Trump won. No, that, that is wrong. What could be more patronizing to blue-collar workers than to say that they are so stupid that they, too, do not have responsibility for informing themselves? My grandparents were blue-collar workers. My grandmother had an eighth-grade education, although that was probably worth more in 1912 than it is today. And they read books all the time. They read newspapers all of the time. The idea that people have no responsibility, whether they're people who are a college professor or a blue-collar worker, and that, and that it is the, 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 the elites have failed because they don't know how to talk to blue-collar workers, it's both arrogant on the part of the, quote, elites 
and it's patronizing to ordinary people who are quite capable of learning things for themselves. Susan Jacoby is author of The Age of American Unreason. Tom Nichols is the author of The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. He's also a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Susan and Tom, thank you so much for this great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. You don't have to go far to find an article or a TV segment about brain food. Plus, you know, your mom's got ideas, your friends have suggestions, people have little tidbits to offer on what kids should eat before the SATs or what you should down before a big presentation. But can food really make you smarter, or at least help you perform better? Economist Justin Gallagher tried to study just that using tens of thousands of kids, all of whom had just one thing in common, their schools provided school lunches. He and two colleagues started doing the research in part because of a 2010 law called the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. And the motivation of this law was, in fact, to uh, ratchet up the nutritional standards of public school lunches at public schools in the U.S. And all of the discussion that we had seen in the media at the time really centered around the potential health benefits of improved school lunches. Uh, not without merit. As we know, there's an obesity epidemic uh, among kids in the U.S. And uh, everything that we saw focused on this potential health benefit of having more nutritious school lunches. What we thought was missing from the discussion was a potential uh, direct effect, a second effect, which would be an improvement on learning and on academic achievement among uh, students in the schools that offered healthier lunches. Gallagher is a professor at Case Western Reserve University, and he ended up with some striking and surprising findings. First off, healthy lunches do have an impact. What we did is we took five years of end-of-year academic test score data on every single student at public schools in California, and we wanted to see if those test scores improved during years when the schools that they attended offered healthier school lunches. And we found that, indeed, they did. California ranks the healthiness of their school lunches, and Gallagher watched as test scores changed in a given school district, depending on what vendor was used that year. What's the upside for a healthy lunch? About four percentile points. So imagine that on your state standardized test, your child usually rings in at about the 80th percentile. Well, on average, a healthier lunch could boost him or her to the 84th percentile. It's not stunning, but if you could get your kid from a 68 to a 72 without a whole lot of extra effort, that's an offer that many parents would take. And Gallagher says it's a pretty inexpensive way of raising achievement. So... For example, a common benchmark among measuring changes in something at the school and how that correlates with student performance is a study that looked at what happened uh, due to a one-third reduction in uh, the number of students in a classroom. So a very large reduction in the student-to-teacher ratio. And uh, they found a much larger effect on test scores, as you would expect, teachers being uh, the most important input for student learning. But it was very expensive to implement this policy. 
And so if we look at, even though we found a much smaller effect, uh, absolute effect on um, test scores due to a change in um, the, the nutritional content of school lunches, if we looked at it from a cost-effectiveness uh, perspective, it's about five times more cost-effective than these larger interventions such as dramatic reductions in uh, the teacher-to-student ratio. But the study wasn't quite as simple as eat better, do better on tests. Though that was certainly a finding, and actually kids on free and reduced lunch did even better than kids who paid for their lunch. They saw a 5 to 6 percentile jump versus 4 for kids not on free and reduced lunch. But here's the twist. Though you'd hope and you'd think that giving kids healthier lunches would reduce obesity rates, the lunches just didn't seem to do that. Once we had those results, we were a bit puzzled at first, but we think one likely explanation is there's calorie targets in place by the National School Lunch Program that all uh, lunches are, are supposed to meet. So that's whether or not the lunches are prepared by um, school workers in-house or by the companies and uh, prepared and served by these outside companies. On average, they're all supposed to be serving the same number of calories to the students. So it's really not uh, the number of calories that's changing, but it's the type of calories. And so one possibility could be that if the number of uh, the total number of calories that are being consumed by these kids isn't changing that much, that it might take a long time to see any effect on health, or it might not even have any effect on health based solely on changing the school lunches. Getting kids to eat healthy was, of course, one of the signature initiatives of former First Lady Michelle Obama. But the Trump administration has made steps to relax rules on school lunches. Here's Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue back in May talking about their plans. USDA is taking the step of providing flexibility around whole grain percentages. We're at 50 percent now. There was a thought of going to 100 percent. That's found to be rather problematic in the, the procurement, as I indicated. Also in the stringent sodium steps uh, going forward there. We're not going to leave it level one for this next year and see how that works. And then the, also the, the thing that I heard the most, and I can identify with this because uh, I wouldn't be as big as I am today without chocolate milk. And the kids told me that the, uh, the flavored milk, which was limited to non-fat, was not as uh, tasty as they would like. So we're allowing 1% uh, flavored milk in, the, in our school lunch program. Gallagher watched the secretary's speech, and he's been following the policy changes. In his view, the data just doesn't support the steps that the administration is taking. It's exactly the wrong thing to be doing, that if anything, uh, we should be continuing to push forward and, and, and ratchet up the nutritional standards. One argument that I've read for why um, we might want to roll back and relax some of the policies that were put into place under the national law is that we, there could be an unintended consequence, as the secretary alluded to, of having the food be less tasty to the kids and therefore having fewer kids choose to eat the school lunches. So potentially under the National School Lunch Program, which was initially set up uh, to help undernourished kids, there could be this unintended effect of having the kids that we would like to help choose to uh, forego the lunches because they just uh, they don't taste good and, and have this negative um, consequence. However, we looked at this, and in our study, we have information on the number of school lunches that are sold at each school. And we don't find any evidence that when schools go to healthier school lunch providers that the number of school lunches sold goes down. So we think that at least where um, the standards are now, 
And again, our what we're defining as healthier school lunches are already above the standards that the secretary is talking about relaxing, that having standards set above what's in place doesn't seem to uh, decrease the number of lunches sold. So we think there's still opportunity to continue to go in the other direction and improve the nutrition of the school lunches. Justin Gallagher is an economics professor at Case Western Reserve University and a co-author of the study, School Lunch Quality and Academic Performance, along with Michael Anderson and Elizabeth Ramirez-Ritchie, both from the University of California, Berkeley. We'll have a link to their research on our website, innovationhub.org. If you want to subscribe to our podcast so you can hear us every week, even when you're away from your radio, we're on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative in Rochester, Minnesota, to build global destinations for life science, medicine, and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. We've all had job interviews that didn't go too well. There's no jobs for manager, it's just for counter. Good. I'm looking for the least possible amount of responsibility. Do you have any special skills? Oh, yes. I do. I, I do voices. What do you mean, you do voices? Well, I do voices. Yeah! We've come to this planet looking for intelligent life. Oops, we made a mistake. I want you in the worst way. Well, it's certainly a rough meeting, and it's not going very well for me, I'll tell you that. That was Kevin Spacey in American Beauty and Robin Williams in Mrs. Doubtfire, both on the hunt for jobs. And research shows that that nightmare interview that still kind of haunts you may not have been something you really had to suffer through. And that, that tends to be particularly so when interviews are what we could call unstructured and psychological. So by that, I mean that the, interview can, the interviewer can structure the interview more or less however they want and just, you know, try to figure the person out or get a read on them or their personality. Jason Dana is an assistant professor of management and marketing at Yale University's School of Management. He says that an interview is not a good indicator of how you're going to do on the job. He writes about this in a New York Times piece called The Utter Uselessness of Job Interviews. And in fact, the sorts of interviews that are probably the most common, the sort that help an employer get, you know, a feel for this new person they're potentially bringing on board, those are the least helpful. So why do we still do interviews if they don't really get us anywhere? Well, you know, one of the two things we identified, the two phenomena we identified in our research is sense-making. And this is the tendency to, to turn virtually anything you hear into a coherent narrative, to feel confidently that you've gotten to know the person. In research with Nathaniel Peterson from Carnegie Mellon University and the late Robin Dawes, also from Carnegie Mellon, Dana asked students to interview other students and predict their GPA. Just like a job interview, the goal was to predict future performance by getting a sense of this person's character. Were they hardworking? Were they committed? Were they smart? Except that some of the interviewees were directed to be honest, and others were directed to give completely random answers that had nothing to do with the truth. And in these random interviews, people rated the extent to which they got to know a person and the amount of useful information they got uh, from the interview to be just as high or higher as they did when they did actually accurate interviews. Not surprisingly, the interviewees who were directed to give random answers were nervous. And some asked Jason Dana, what do I do if it suddenly occurs to the interviewer, I'm just telling them fake things? 
I said, well, no one's going to figure it. That's not going to happen, right? And, and <laughs> you know, we've never had an interview just stop and say, oh, this is random. It makes you realize, and I asked Dana about this, that we literally don't know when we're being told the truth. And I guess we're also pretty bad at zeroing in on people who are lying. Well, I wouldn't say lying. I would say it's more a question of making sense of, of making a story out of something that happens. I mean, I let off the, uh, the article that you were mentioning about the, the New York Times piece uh, with an anecdote about my friend who showed up for a job interview. It was a, she showed up, uh, she walked into the reception area five minutes before the interview and she was hustled right in. And it was a panel interview that went pretty well. And at the end of it, they offered her the job. Hmm. And then in the post-mortem discussion, someone said, wow, I, I just can't believe you were that cool walking in here 25 minutes late. And her heart stopped, right? As it turned out, she had been told the wrong time hmm. by half an hour. Hmm. So she thought it, it wasn't supposed to start yet. And she was actually 25 minutes late. Uh, it's, it's funny, you know, they, they interpreted that as being cool under fire. Uh, you could have also interpreted that as being flippant, right. not just not caring about being late. But in either event, I don't think either of those was a characteristic of my friend. <laughs> it, the, the, the situation was that, that they just, you know, she didn't even know she was late. And there was just a misunderstanding and people made a story out of it. And what's really weird is, of course, the story has nothing to do with the job. The job was something social work related or something. So there's hmm. really no need to be cool under fire. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Jason Dana, a professor at Yale School of Management, whose work casts doubt on whether job interviews are, in fact, helpful. Um, so research in general shows that people tend to be attracted to, and I don't mean romantically attracted, but um, they tend to like people who are like them. And that might be the same gender. It might be the same race. It might just be that they share sort of the same sort of background. And I wonder if in interviews you see that same sort of thing reflected so uh, people are choosing people who are, in fact, you know, kind of like them. Yeah, that's quite possible. It's difficult to make sweeping general statements about you know, all kinds of interviews across all kinds of fields. But, but what we know is that people are choosing on the basis of something. And it's not always something that correlates with job performance or job success. So that's troubling, right? Because it opens the door for mm -hmm. these personal biases or for just injustice, right? You shouldn't be right. excluded from a career uh, based on a criterion, which is the, in this case, you know, the the impression someone has after an interview. If it, if it doesn't have anything to do with job performance. We talked about the um, experiment with trying to predict people's GPAs. Um, is there another experiment either that you've done or that just exists in the literature about job interviews that particularly has struck you, uh, you know, and, and sort of stayed with you uh, as you as you think about the importance of uh, doing interviews for jobs? Well, one of the difficult things is that... Um, you very rarely encounter full-on experiments with hiring. Yeah. So unless you're a very large organization that hires a lot of people and is forward-thinking enough to experiment, uh, how, many, how many times do you hire someone that you intended not to hire, mm -hmm. right, so that you can really learn whether people that you didn't like uh, are worse right. than people you did like? Right. Now, Sometimes it does. We, we do have a couple of rare instances where that something like that happens by accident. So uh, there was a medical paper about the University of Texas at Houston's uh, medical school 
uh, where wherein they made their admissions decisions, which which were largely based on interviews once people made a certain cut point with their MCATs and all that sort of thing. And then uh, the state legislature, I guess, passed some act that said, well, you have to take 50 more people from in-state. And this happened late in the season, so they had to scramble and find 50 mm. initially rejected applicants mm-hmm. who weren't accepted somewhere else and agreed to go somewhere else. And now you have a kind of a natural experiment. You have a cohort of people you meant to accept and 50 who you really thought you were rejecting and you intended to reject, but then you got them. Right. (laughs) And then you see, you know, are there any differences? And it turns out here that no matter what you looked at, grades, uh, awards, even ratings in clinical, which are about people skills, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, dealing with patients, dealing with supervisors, dealing with a team. There were no differences between the initially accepted students and the initially rejected. Hmm. Just nothing. Um, you must encounter people, I mean, you just told me about an example of a school, but you must encounter people all the time who say to you, well, okay, so the research may show that job interviews aren't that helpful, but I am really good at, um, you know, getting a sense of a person's personality and would they fit in, you know, at, at this school or at this workplace or whatever. And, and what do you... I mean, I don't know if you hear that, but, like, what do you think when you hear that? All the time, all the time. I I got, you know, several emails after this article of people saying, well, the problem is not that interviews are generally bad, but that it's just the interviewers, right? You know, that interviews are valuable Mm -hmm. when you do them correctly, and Mm -hmm. and if a good interviewer will get you better results. And, of course, everyone who's emailing me is a good interviewer. But (laughs) these good interviewers seem to elude any empirical, right? Like when, when you do studies, they're, they're hard to find. They're elusive. Uh, and I think this is an illusion. I mean, I don't know where people mm. come off thinking that they're good interviewers because you usually don't get the right information to know that. Mm. As we discussed earlier, without a proper experiment, you rarely know how good the people you didn't hire would have been. Mm. So... Are there companies or uh, sectors of the economy that have figured this out to some degree, that have looked at the research and said, it actually doesn't really make sense to interview people? Sometimes we hurt ourselves by interviewing people. Um, We could do things better. Yeah, and, you know, this is going to vary a lot across sectors. I guess in in some fields that I, I would call more technical, maybe coding like computer software or engineering, you might just do more of a skills assessment. You know, what what does this person know? What things have they worked on before? What are the projects they've done? And lean more heavily on that than a psychological conversation. Uh, something that that some fields are using more now is like a skills assessment mm-hmm. rather than a than an unstructured interview. So having you basically perform job duties in front of me. Right? So my my brother was in claims and insurance mm-hmm. and his favorite interview, quote unquote, was a, actually a homework assignment where they gave him uh, a sanitized claim form and said, here, process this claim, right? Sh- mm. Show us what you do. <laughs> so like instead of just have a random conversation with us, which is not what your job is going to be about, do the actual thing that you're going to be doing from day to day. Do that for us. Exactly. Okay. Now, you know, the higher up you go or in some fields, this is very difficult. Like a common objection I hear is, well, I don't know, a manager in field X, like there's no work product to look at. I Mm -hmm. I can't have you manage during the interview. How do I assess that? Mm -hmm. 
I, I would say, though, in, in principle, in theory, the goal is the same here. There, there should be some idea of exactly what the skills are or mm-hmm. what kind of person you need to be to succeed in the job. Now, that, that idea might be a little too inchoate in some places, but the idea is the same, right? You, you have to think through exactly what skills are necessary or essential to the job's performance and use the interview in a laser-focused way mm. to assess those skills, mm-hmm. right? to try to measure those skills. And too often interviews are veering off into stuff that if you really thought about it is almost irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. It's not essential Mm -hmm. features that you need for the job. Why do you think it has stuck around so long as a tradition, this idea of interviewing, if, you know, we know that data can be applied much more effectively to things than it is being applied? Well, it's a threatening idea to think that we just can't really predict, we can't really understand people as well as we think we can. And, And... and there's just a sort of a seductive feeling of understanding that goes with the holistic impressions, like just that feeling, that impression of having gotten to know someone is very powerful and very seductive. It's hard not to listen to. It's a siren song. Hmm. Jason Dana is an assistant professor of management and marketing at Yale's School of Management. Jason, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for having me on. We've got a link to Jason Dana's article in the New York Times called The Utter Uselessness of Job Interviews that's at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show, senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Sollinger, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also have production help this week from Marielle Carricker and Samantha Crozier. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI. Public Radio International.